This is The Granite Beat, a podcast where we highlight New Hampshire journalists, ask them about recent stories they've published, and about what it's like to cover their corner of this small and interesting state. I'm Julie Hershan Hart, and I'm here with Adam Drapshow. Hello. Readers of Granite State newspapers will likely recognize the name of Mike Cody as an editor with the New Hampshire Union Leader, where he worked for 11 years. Earlier this year, though, he made a career shift. He left the daily newspaper life for that of monthly periodicals so he could take the role of New Hampshire editor for Yankee Publishing, where he leads the teams behind New Hampshire Magazine and the New Hampshire Business Review. We're so pleased to have you with us today, Mike. Thanks for having me. This is sort of my standard opening question, but I never get tired of hearing the answers, so I'm going to stick with it. Mike, could you tell us how you first became interested in journalism and how you found a foothold in the career? Okay, I'll give you my true standard answer. I had a bachelor's degree in English and communication and never did any. I I needed a job. So I I eventually got a graduate degree in journalism, mostly just to get access to internships and freelance work, correspondent work, that kind of thing. That, that was my path. It wasn't like I always wanted to be a journalist. I knew fairly early on that writing was my strength. I just didn't know what to do with it. I took a lot of fiction classes at the University of New Hampshire. Okay. And how did you find your way into journalism? Well, I was, I was tired of, I was, I was a janitor for the University of System of New Hampshire. The chancellor's office used to be located near the Lee Traffic Circle in Barrington. And after I was finished school, I kind of, I had that job while I was school. When I was finished, I continued working there for another year. And, you know, I mowed lawns, took out the trash, and frankly, did a lot of nothing. I used to get to sit in the basement and read books, and then they'd call down there if they needed me to go pick up something for them. It was a pretty good gig, great benefits, low pay, but it was fun. And my wife at the time was finishing school, and we ended up both going to Colorado because her her older brother lived out there, and he was also somebody who was in transition and, want, and was studying to be an electrical engineer and working full-time during the day. So we shared a house with him, and uh, he went to go, I went to the University of Colorado Boulder and got some freelance work, internships, things like that, and you know, I had a path, finally. But it, you know, I, was, I started relatively late. I think I was 26 when I had my first full-time newspaper job. Okay. All right. That that's, sounds pretty young from this side of that. It does now, doesn't it? <laughs> it's a long time ago. So, you know, I thought I knew all about you. And then I looked at your LinkedIn page and I learned that you were a contributing writer for Blues Review Magazine for 14 years, all while your career as a reporter and newspaper editor was building. I'm curious about that gig, dare I say. And I, I'm curious if you think of that work as a passion project, a side hustle, or something that was useful to the trajectory of your career? Well, I'll start, I'll go in reverse chronological order. I still work for, it's not Blues Review anymore, it's changed ownership. And after, I think, some legal wrangling, it it became Blues Music Monthly. So it still exists. It's a quarterly, but right now it's definitely a passion project because they don't pay anymore. So, you know, it's one guy keeping this thing alive with a bunch of volunteers and people who just love the music. And every time I think, I really can't afford to work for free anymore. I'll just get an interview with somebody really cool. Like I, I spoke to Eric Bibb, who is recently, a few months back, who is a, a kind of a blues troubadour, more of an acoustic musician. And he's lived in Sweden most of his adult life, 
but he writes, uh, he looks at the blues a little bit differently than what you might think of if you're going to like a bar, you know, at Strange Brew, listening to the blues. He writes about racial issues and historical issues and, and uh, has fun as well. But we, you know, we talked, did a thing like this. We were over Zoom for about an hour. He was in his kitchen in Sweden and I was in my kitchen in Manchester. And we had this just really powerful conversation and, you know, that's why I keep doing it. But early on, I lived in Florida and I was working for the Naples Daily News. And the one of the only music venues in town was a small club that booked a lot of blues shows. Actually, they ended up being a couple of places. So I would write, you know, stories as a side thing for the newspaper. I wasn't getting paid any extra for it. It was just something I did for fun. And I decided, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm reading this magazine, Blues Review, and they're doing stories on a lot of the same people that I'm interviewing for the newspaper I'll, I'll send them a query and hey here's what I've done I'd love to write to write for you and and it was so cool because I had been in, in a journalist for a little while by then but I got a call from the managing editor and say what do you want to do and I started writing for them and that was a thrill you know back then you know, they paid a little bit and it was it was a little fun money but I you know I got to interview uh, you know BB King and John Lee Hooker and Coco Taylor a whole bunch of people, some well-known, some obscure over a long period of time, and enough so that I really want to gather them. I thought about for Black History Month, maybe even this year, if I got my act together, I could do the great 28 and just you know, post one every day of, of people that I've talked to over the years and, and who are just powerful musicians and, you know, and write about very important topics. Mike, I know that you grew up in Manchester, and then, as you sort of described in your current column in for New Hampshire magazine, you left to sort of make your adult life and then came back to New Hampshire and took the job at the Union Leader. What was it like to come back and work for the paper for the hometown that you grew up in? It was very surreal. And let's see, I'll start, I'll start with what my mom teased me about. You know, as you know, the Union Leader... Uh, great newspaper, great. New- I love the people that I work with who did, you know, objective, strong journalism, and they continue to do that. I'm very proud of the team there and the people I work with. But I grew up with the Union Leader in the era of William Loeb. I delivered the paper as a kid. And, you know, back then, the, the reputation of the paper was a little bit different. When William Loeb was putting stories, uh, had editorials on the front page, fairly radical right wing, kind of just, he just liked to blow stuff up, you know, and, and, and sell papers by being, by being a little bit of extreme. And, and Manchester was a place for me that I wanted to escape from. So and I don't remember saying this, but my mother does. She says, two things you said you'd never do, move back to Manchester and work for the union leader. So I've done them both. And uh, they both turned out to be a, a pretty good thing. Um, I came back here. On your resume, you know, with, you have a resume. And if, if you have some gaps that are like months, not years, they don't really tell your whole story. Well, my resume had a five-month gap when I was unemployed. And I came here with no job. And I was lucky to find one in a month because there was a, a quarter page ad in the union leader for pretty much a job that I had done for many years. So what's it been like to switch from the daily newspaper world to a twice monthly or monthly, in the case of New Hampshire Business Review and New Hampshire Magazine, respectively, after being in the daily world for so long? Well, you know, I've, I've done this before. When I lived in Colorado, I worked for five years as the editor of Colorado Biz Magazine, very similar business model to Business New Hampshire Magazine, our, our competitor down the road in the Mill Yard. There's is a glossy, you know, uh, monthly magazine. 
very similar business to business model that that we had when I worked in Colorado. So I understood that rhythm. I knew that rhythm of going to going from a daily to a, a monthly and the ups and downs of that cycle where you're you know you're gearing up and then you're super super busy crazy busy and then it flows back down. But even then, I did a lot of other things that I didn't you know you don't really typically do if you work in a newspaper because you're too busy putting out a paper every day. I did lot I went to a lot more community events, a lot more chamber of commerce events. I I got to do a fair amount of travel both within the state and out of the state, and and I was busy. So I knew that aspect of it when I joined here. I also knew when they advertised this job as a new position that it wasn't so much a new position, but that it was two positions rolled into one. And I told them that in my cover letter and when I interviewed here. I mean, this is that's the reality of the media business. And I, I also could, I felt very comfortable, you know, being straight about that because I had just kind of experienced that over the last couple of years at the Union Leader when you know during COVID uh, the, the company furloughed a fair number of people and, and didn't bring all of them back. I mean, it just it, this is about survival, right? So how many people? Do we have here who can do more than one thing, you know, or two or three things? So I absorbed m- most of the managing editor's job, and you know, as far as the local news, uh, working on as an assignment editor in, in addition to business, and kept writing my column. Now there were other things that the executive editor picked up, and other people picked up. Same as what I'm experiencing now. There's no way that I'm going to do everything that Jeff Feingold, who was the longtime editor of the Hampshire Business Review. And Rick Broussard, who was the editor of New Hampshire Magazine, there's no way I'm going to do everything that they did. But we have other people here. We've rearranged some of the duties. And, you know, it, it'll work. It's taking a while. But, you know, it's good. I'm busy. And also both of those people, this was daunting. Both Rick and Jeff were the only editors of the, these publications ever. <laughs> and, and they walked away with a lot of collective knowledge and a lot of things where, you know, Jeff could get everything done very quickly and efficiently as you can when you're in a job for a long time. You're able to just think three steps ahead. And, you know, I, I'm working on that with our, our other, with our team here, but it's fun. And I'm very grateful that I get to do something new at this point in my life, particularly in this industry. I'd like to ask you a few questions about the art of the column. Could we start by having you tell us when you began writing columns? And I'm curious if you started that because you wanted to or because it was part of the description of the job that you had at the time. I think in both where I started writing a, a weekly column when I was business editor of the Daily Camera in Boulder, Colorado. I worked there for 11 years and nine of those years I was business editor. And when I worked for the union leader in a similar role when I started, both those columns were something that had not existed before. I think that the Previous business editor, when I was in Boulder, had thought about writing a column, maybe wrote one or two, but but didn't do that. And once you start writing it every week, you kind of just, you're married to it. So I don't know how many I wrote over 11 years, you know, 50 columns, 48 columns a year, something like that. And similar, you know, for the union leader, in between, I wrote a monthly, you know, editor's note column for Colorado Biz for five years. I'm a much better columnist when I'm writing more than when I'm writing less. I think when you're writing just a monthly column, you think about it. It's like you know, it's like a, a, a bands that don't put out records for every five years. They're not they're not working on a record for five years. They're working on a record for two weeks before they put out the album or something. That's just the, that's just inevitable with deadlines. And now I'm trying to strike that balance here. I've I'm writing an, a, you know, an editor's note once a month. I've written one column for New Hampshire Business Review. Ultimately, I'll probably do like a monthly one and maybe just do two. And it's a kind of a crushing schedule to write every week. We'll see. We'll see how, how much I can manage everything else, but I will definitely do at least a couple of. But to your question about the art of a column, you know, I've columns, you tend to follow your crazy ideas. If you're writing an essay, you're writing anything, 
follow something that you're going to have fun doing. And no one ever in, in anywhere I've been has ever told me what the column should be about or write about this, or write about that. It may be occasional suggestions, but for the most part, you're on your own. So if you're writing about something and you, and you realize, well, I wish I hadn't chosen this particular subject or person to interview or whatever, it's, it's not going anywhere. It's your own fault. But I can't say I've ever had that problem ever because sometimes even if you think, I don't know if this is going to work or if this is really going to be that interesting, you know, if you're talking to somebody who's passionate about what they do, it, you'll, you'll find a way. You'll find something from it that, that you can work with. I don't write a lot of columns that are, you know, the kind of personal essays. I'm doing that more with the editor's note because that's kind of a nature of, of, of columns for New Hampshire Magazine. But even for New Hampshire Magazine, I wrote one column that was really an interview with, a, with an artist. Her name is Sarah Richard. She's a Nashua comic book artist and author because I, I, I met her with, through one of my colleagues and she uh, she wrote a, a kind of a creepy book called the, the Graveyard Handbook. I don't have it in front of me here. But um, and so I mean, I, I interviewed her and actually got a was able to she kindly let us use one of the images from her book to go with my column, which was so much fun. So I'm giving you a long answer, but you want to have fun with it. I'll tell you one one last thing. You follow your crazy ideas back when Napster you know, in the early, early years before iTunes and, you know, uh, college kids were getting accused of stealing music and the music industry was suing them. It was crazy. I got into my head one morning. What if I changed all the words to Bob Dylan's subterranean homesick blues to tell this Napster story in a column? And I did. And it was the, it was a fun column. And so much so that it, even in the early days of the internet, it somehow found the attention of a musician in I think it was New Mexico or Arizona. Anyway, he asked me if he could record it. So I have a CD of this very very professionally produced recording of this version. It's called Subterranean Record Store Blues. And I think his band, he named his band The Strokers, but he was just a studio musician. And it's really good. He changed one word because I veered away from a rhyme scheme and he, you know, he changed it to way where it should have been. So he made a slight edit. But that kind of stuff is fun because it's just that's what that's what the writing can bring you a lot of joy and you know the, the journey is so much part of the fun. I'm curious what function the column serves. What does it provide as an opportunity to the writer that a just regular byline story doesn't provide? And also, what does it provide to the publication? What does it bring to the publication overall? Well, I'll tell you about how I how I pr- approached the column when I worked for the union leader and to a large, probably the similar degree when I was in Boulder, but even more so with the union leader. Resources are tight, as you know, being in this industry. So the columns that I wrote for the union leader rarely were commentary. You know, there, there's, there's so much of that. People can get commentary everywhere. I once in a while wrote one, but most of the time my columns were similar. I'd say my former colleague, Mark Hayward, who recently retired from the union leader, he wrote the City Matters column every week, and actually he's done some work with me here for New Hampshire Business Review, so I get to work with him again, which is fun. His columns and my columns were more of stories with a column voice because I, I needed to have – I needed content. We need content for the for the newspaper, not enough. We don't have that many people. You know, even the, the business reporter uh, that I worked with there, Jonathan Phelps, is the reporter now. You know, he was also covering court trials. And, you know, we, we, we don't have – we didn't have a dedicated just a person just doing business. And even if – even when we did, you know, you have a Sunday paper, you're, you're working with freelancers and some wire copy, but mostly what we want to produce as much local material as possible. So a lot of my columns were stories where we could – you know, have photos. We could have a photographer there as well. And it just, 
affected the way I would write the column. I had a little more of my voice in there, but it was reporting, you know, reporting, talking to people, you know, go visiting factories, uh, going to events, whatever. But I could have a little more fun with the language, you know, a little bit of first person stuff, a little bit of, you know, column, more playful language and not straight news. But um, so, you know, it, it depends on what you, you know, as far as what the readers were getting, the readers were getting a story about something and uh, maybe with a little bit different voice. That's kind of what I tried to do and really provide local stuff. And I also looked at it as what can I write about that no one else is writing about? Or you know, I, sometimes I would think if I don't write this column just because I have this particular knowledge about something or this particular perspective or just happen to know, I'm not talking about so much breaking news, but there's so many stories that if you don't tell them, they simply won't get told. The moment will be gone or you have a particular experience that you can bring to this column. And that's kind of what I usually shot for. It also made it more fun to do. Are you or any of your teams working on something that you'd like to you'd like to tease right now? Not really. I don't know if we have a lot of things going on, but nothing of the breaking news nature that I can that I can think of. We are we are we are, we are working with overhauling some you know changing some columns, changing some features, looking at you know I'm at the place where we we have our, our we had to hire a few people. I inherited this job with three open positions and. We're close to filling their you know, assistant editor jobs positions. And so I'll have a little more time to like map things out. Like the last four months has been a lot of keeping everything going. You mentioned making some structural changes. I'm curious, your company that you work for includes some of the most storied titles in the region. I'm thinking of Yankee Magazine and the Old Farmer's Almanac. What does the future look like for these types of publications in such a dynamic and uh, unpredictable uh, landscape? That's a great question. I just spent two days with my colleagues from Yankee and some board members of our of our, our company talking about exactly that. What's the future? And you know, we have these very very powerful brands, but you know, we're primarily in the magazine business. Postage rates are super expensive. I mean, that affects newspapers now because some newspapers are starting to send you know, the newspapers to far-flung areas of the state, those, you know, paper costs, all that, all those costs are super high. So you could bring in a lot of revenue and still not, you know, carve up much of a profit with the, with those publications, but they're very powerful brands. Uh, Old Farmer's Almanac is, you know, the very powerful brand in our company. And I'll give you an example of what they've done with that brand, licensing some of the content to other other companies. Uh, they produce a lot of other products, calendars, and you know, page a days, and gardening books. And um, during COVID, the company did really well because people were really getting into gardening. So really, I think all anybody who's in media is thinking about what else can we do, right? I mean, we're on this podcast right now. Now, this podcast for you guys is extra content. It's bringing people something fresh. It's a different venue. When we do podcasts here as well, we also think, okay, what can we do with this material? We can do a Q&A in the print edition and online with that same material so that we're, we're taking advantage of that. But back to your original question, the money part of it, you know, this is a tough business to be in. So we have to think, what other, what other venues can we excel at? You know, our company does a fair amount of custom publishing. That's that's an area that we'll continue to work on. We're looking at various. It's like when people retire, right? You have all right. I have my uh, you know my four hundred one k and maybe a pension and you know social security. You're looking at how can you diversify? And the prediction that newspapers and magazines are going to die. You know that's what's what is that twenty thirty years old? Maybe you know we're still here doing it. Just finding ways to be scrappy and and looking at what can we sell to people. We have audience. We have expertise. You know, we, we know this industry and we have 
establish brands and credibility in the marketplace. So all those things will be working on how can we capitalize on that with, you know, fairly small teams working hard, doing a whole bunch of different things. We've interviewed journalists who work for privately owned for-profit media companies and some who work for grant-funded nonprofits. Yankee is something different in that it's an employee-owned company. Is that distinction something that affects the day-to-day operations of the organization? And does it result in a product that's different than it would if it were a more conventional structure? Well, we've been an employee-owned company for about a year. It happened in 2022. And so the company owes money to the family investors. And that's something that you know we'll be paying out over time. But it definitely changes the makeup of how people think here because, you know, you, on your first day, you get a T-shirt. It says you're an employee owner, right? We all have a stake in this company. And, you know, we have maybe have a little a little something coming, hopefully, you know, when we retire. It's, I, I have no idea how, how big that is. It all depends on how where we are. But it definitely changes the way we think because we're, you know, when you're an owner, and this is the ESOP strategy of structure has been used by a number of companies in New Hampshire and around the country. It definitely changes the way people think about their jobs. You know, you can't say, no, that's not my job. Well, it is if we if we need somebody to do it, right? And it, you, it definitely changes the way we think about each other and our teams. As the, the, does it affect the products? I don't think, you know, maybe in terms of quality or just what people are striving toward, but it's really more of how does it affect the company culture? And, and I think it's huge. What advice would you have for someone who's interested in starting their career in journalism? You know, I taught at the University of Colorado off and on for about 10 years. I'd say like seven years straight if I put them all together, writing and editing and design, things like that, mostly reporting. And I'd, I'd always tell students, you know, this is even, you know, 10 years ago, more than that. Why do you want to do this? This is, you know, this is an industry in a death spiral. Why, why are you doing this? And, they, and, you know, a lot of these classes, they were filled with primarily students who were in the public relations advertising track. And, but there'd always be a handful of kids, maybe four or five of 18, who wanted to be reporters in some way. And their answers were always great. They just, this is what I want to do. And, and, and I'm going to find a way to do it. You need to have, you need to be versatile and you need to know how to do a bunch of different things. And this is an industry that's, you know, it's hard to find work. The paths, you know, when I started off, the paths were still in place. This is a while ago, but the paths are gone. Like if you, when I went to school, I, had, I got internships and I had, you know, I got some correspondent work and those things gave, gave me contacts, experience, and helped me find a job. And, you know, there was a place, there was, there was an era where if you wanted to go to the next level, you could move to a bigger paper or become a manager at a small paper and, write, and you know, and stay in, in the same ladder. I, I was more of the latter side because, you know, I had children and we wanted to stay in communities that we wanted to live in and not be in a you know big variety city where maybe the your journalism opportunities were stronger, but the living conditions weren't weren't so great. So I, I kind of moved around and were able to do that. But now, you know, everything's everything's different. And I think you want to find if you want to do this, find another path that you can do also along with journalism. If I had a child who was pursuing this, I'd say you have have something else alongside it that you can do or get a specialty or you know, business reporting certainly. There's, a, there's always been a demand for that. Um, have, a, have more than one degree so that you could use that expertise for journalism, but also, you know, be entrepreneurial. It's, it's a much different world now, and, and we haven't seen 
where it's going. There's, you know, grant funded opportunities that newspapers have used. Uh, you know, we have the Grant State News Collaborative, which our company is a part of, which is great. We're able to share things, but, you know, the, no one's come up with a model yet that will make journalism as we know it thrive. And Mike, our last question for you, where could people go to see more of your work? NHPR.com and NewHampshireMagazine.com. I don't have my own personal website yet, but certainly our brands are, are out there. And, you know, we have email newsletters for all our products. And also our, our, our friends at Yankee, we're easy to find. Thank you so much for joining us, Mike. I really enjoyed this conversation. Julie and Adam, thank you so much. And it was my pleasure. The Granite Beat is a project of the Granite State News Collaborative in partnership with the Laconia Daily Sun. We record at the Lakeport Opera House, and our theme music is composed by Bob McCarthy. Thanks also to the Marlin Fitzwater Center at Franklin Pierce University for editing and other support.